I'd like to start tonight's talk with a poem. And this is a poem I've known for a long time by Relka that in these last weeks has been somewhat at the center of my reflection. So it feels alive for me. And I kind of want to use this evening to explore it with you some, especially one key part of it. God speaks to each of us as he makes us and then walks with us silently out of the night. And these are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You'll know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. So, um, I'll spend the time sinking in a little to this, particularly to this one line, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. To bring it into maybe a less poetic context for, to start with, um, part of the time that I was away I was doing a, a training in New England for mental health professionals and there's a growing interest in how to bring uh, practices of meditation into psychotherapy, as, as many of you know. So we were exploring Buddhist psychology and one of the basic principles in Buddhist psychology that you also find in all the more contemplative martial arts and that you also find in the wise Western psychotherapies is the phrase, what you resist persists. Now that's not as poetic as let everything happen to you, right? <laughs> but it's, it's right. It's whatever you resist persists. And in a way we are controlled by the unembraced parts of our, our life experience. Whatever is going on inside us, including whatever reaction we have to anyone else, that's what's controlling and shaping our life experience, what we're resisting. So let's say, for example, that you're feeling in some way hurt or insecure in a relationship right, right now with someone. And if instead of just opening to those feelings, there's a reaction of judgment like, I shouldn't be feeling that, or there's a denial, like, I don't feel that. Or there's a blame, it's your fault that I'm feeling that. Or if in some way we try to control it or numb it or do anything but oh, shaky, insecure, doesn't feel good, anything but being directly with it, that insecurity is, is controlling and shaping our experience. So it's often described in Buddhist scriptures as the second arrow, that we have an experience, whatever it is, physical sickness, hurt, fear, whatever, and then rather than just, they say, take out the arrow, just being with what's there, we add stuff. We add stuff. We add judgment. We add interpretations. We add pushing it away. We add numbing it out. We add everything. But just being with it. It's, in a way, the way our whole self-sense is constructed, that our sense of self is organized around the ways we're trying to control or not be with what's difficult. 
that's how we know ourselves. And the way we find that out is that in the moments that we're not resisting, in the moments that there's really an undefendedness, we don't know ourselves so well anymore. The familiar sense of ego is not there, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So the practice in in the Buddhist training is actually, if you really look at what are we doing with this mindfulness, the arrows happen to not add the second arrow, to cultivate a quality of courageous presence that actually frees us from that grip of suffering, from that that resisting and then being caught in this kind of uh, insecure, fighting, resisting self. And we can see it in relationships that when we're in some sort of a reactivity, there's no way that we can have intimacy. When there's an arrow that comes and we add an arrow, it doesn't work. That healing's only possible when we stop adding the interpretations and the judgments and we're willing to be with the other person. Right? In relationships, if you keep on adding the arrows, it doesn't work. You have to stop and say, okay, what's real? It's the same thing internally until the moment that we stop the war and just say, okay, let me really be with this, there's no possibility of freedom at all. We can see it in, uh, in our world in terms of warring tribes and nations and, and peoples that there's a kind of an evolution of consciousness that knows that if we keep on battling, it's suffering. And it's when we try peace and reconciliation our beer in the White House, or whatever it is, but when we decide to sit down and be with more, that's evolving. So the story in the Buddha's life that most captures this, that I hope many of you have heard of, is when Mara would keep revisiting the Buddha. Now, Mara is the god of greed and hatred and delusion and all the shadow side, all the ways that we resist, that we fight, that we get caught in passion, that we get destructive, that's Mara. And as the myth goes, the Buddha awakened under the Bodhi tree, experienced a profound quality of freedom, and then went on to teach and move through his life. And yet, Mara, those forces, kept reappearing. Now this is really encouraging good news, because it happened to the Buddha. So if you feel like you have a terrific meditation, and then you go and you yell at your kid, or you get your driving, and you, you know, have some, you know, thing go on with another driver, that's just Mara. It's okay. But here's the pith of the story, that uh, Mara would come, the Buddha would have these gatherings and, uh, where he was teaching different monks and nuns and, and people, and Mara would appear kind of on the, in the periphery, and his, his attendant, the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, who was his loyal attendant through his life, would see Mara and go, oh, horrors, you know, like this. And he'd run to the Buddha and say, oh, oh, you know, sir, Mara's here. What are we going to do? He'd be all freaked out. You know, should we get rid of him? What should we do? And the Buddha, each time, this is kind of the, the basics of the story, would say, oh, no, 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 don't send him away. And he'd go to Mara and say, I see you, Mara. Would you like to come and have tea? So that's the basic story. So the second arrow would be to try to get rid of him. Instead, he just said, okay, come to tea. 
Now, if the Buddha had kicked him out, if the Buddha had had anything other than that response, he, his sense of self would have been trapped in, oh, I'm a defended self, I'm an aggressive self, I'm a fearful self, I'm a threatened self. It would have consolidated selfing. Any response we have with a second arrow consolidates our sense of being a endangered, not okay self. But instead, his identity continued to be free. He wasn't adding anything. In fact, he became enlarged. So as I mentioned, I was mentioning kind of from an evolutionary perspective, it's our conditioning to add the second arrow. If you find that something comes up and your first tendency is to not want to feel it, to blame yourself, blame another, run away, numb, that's our conditioning. In the face of unpleasantness, we are our nervous systems designed to fight or flee or freeze, not to be present. Some of you might remember George Carlin, he put it this way, he said, I'm not into working out. My philosophy is, no pain, no pain, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's it, you know. So we, you know, there's a part of it that says, forget it, why bother? And then we also have this higher order capacity to meet what's arising with a wise attention, with an awareness. And the Buddha's teachings were dedicated to training us on how to respond, not react. That's the gist of all the teachings, how in the face of the arrows of Mara, how instead of reacting, we can discover the freedom that's possible when we take refuge in presence, when we just respond from presence. So the beginning, as we explore it tonight really for us, is to say, okay, so where is the reactivity in my life right now? And these, these uh, gatherings really only make sense if we are in a very direct way saying, okay, so where is it in my life? Where is Mara right now? You know, where are you adding the second arrow? Where is something going on that feels wrong or bad? that you're judging yourself for, judging someone else for. Now sometimes we're finding Mara in the form classically of what's called the grasping mind, where we're just caught in like chasing after something. We're grasping after having things a certain way, having somebody else act a certain way. We're grasping after approval or money or a substance or we're we're caught in some addiction that wants to be fed. So that's one way that we see Mara appearing in our lives. The other, which I'll probably end up spending a little more time, is where there's a version where we don't like how it is. So where in your life are you in some way running away from how it is? You don't like what's happening. Takes the form of either fear or hatred, anger. It can also have the guise of aloofness, a kind of a kind of uh, distancing. Like I read one exchange between a coach who was also a college president and a football player, and the coach is saying, I told him, what is it with you? Is it ignorance or apathy? And he said, coach, I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was great. (laughs) 
So that's Mara. That's Mara in some form of aversion that's not as obvious. And Mara, of course, takes the, the role of denial, too, where we try to make it like it's all okay. Um, we're not really looking at what's happening. The example here is at a dinner table, two couples, and one wife is talking about her evolving communications with her husband. Well, Jack and I have learned to accept each other's idiosyncrasies, like my passion for cashew brittle and his going out every night and not coming home until dawn. <laughs> That's denial. Okay. Okay. So Mara also expresses as numbness. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, okay, so there's no major reactivity, but there's a kind of not alive, there's a kind of a numbness. You know what I mean? It's like um, in some way we've found ways to put ourselves kind of out of the role of the lim- world of the living. In, in India they say that sleep is called a poor man's nirvana, you know. So it's a sense of we, we sleep a lot or in some way numb ourselves. Now typically when the forces of Mara are activated, our first reflex, our very first reflex, the first part of the second arrow is judgment. And the judgment is fundamentally something's wrong. And then very quickly I'll go to something's wrong with me or something's wrong with you. So you might just sense when you look at where reactivity is going on in your life, if there's a very core level of an attitude that's saying, this is bad, this is wrong, it shouldn't be like this. Because right away, that's the second arrow. You cannot establish a healing and liberating relationship if there's a quality of this shouldn't be happening. Because that's arguing with reality. Reality is that it is. It's just there. And any argument with reality causes suffering. So the first step is to recognize if we're thinking we're inviting Mara to tea whether there's some level of, of judging. And one of the best examples of this the power of putting down the judgment that I've uh, shared in this group last year came from uh, the film Gorillas in the Midst, and some of you might remember it. And it, it's a film about really uh, George Shaler, who was a primate biologist, and he'd returned from the wilds with the most interesting, intimate, compelling information about gorilla life that had yet been collected. And his colleagues would ask him how he was able to get information nobody could get before about remarkable detail about the tribal structure and the family and the intimate habits of the gorillas. And he attributed it all to one simple thing. He didn't carry a gun. All the previous generations of observers had entered the territory of these really peaceable, large, large creatures And they had been toting these large rifles, okay? So what kind of energy does that communicate to what you're observing when you're carrying a rifle? I think you get the analogy here. So it appears that the gorillas could could sense the danger and fear that these rifle-toting men had, and they kept a far distance. And by contrast, Shaler would enter their territory without a weapon, and he moved slowly and gently, and above all, respectfully respectfully towards these amazing creatures. And in time, sensing their, his benevolence, they allowed him and then his student, Diane Fossey, who's in the movie, to sit right among them and learn their ways. 
So this story really captures uh, the first step of having tea with Mara, that we, that we recognize and put down the gun. And that takes, that takes a real courage. It's very radical to say, okay, I'm going to be with what's here. Remember, let everything happen to you. I'm going to be with it without this undercurrent of this shouldn't be here, this is wrong, this is bad. Okay, so that's the first piece. And just to, to say that that itself is powerfully transforming in the moment that we meet what's inside us. And on some level there's like, I sometimes think of it like there's this bow. And by the way, everything we're talking about with our inner life has to do with our relationships with others. Because if we can put down our gun to what's really difficult in here, then we can begin to bow to the challenging energies that run through all of us. I remember hearing about a story uh, that this Jesuit priest, Anthony DeMello, described, a wonderful teacher. He wrote that he had been neurotic for years. He said that um, he was anxious and depressed and selfish. And that, like most people, he adopted one self-improvement project after another. And when nothing seemed to work, he was on the verge of despair. And part of what was so difficult was that even his friends agreed he needed to change. <laughs> so, so, so he said his world stopped one day. He said, when a friend told him, don't change. I love you just as you are. Okay, don't change. Don't change. I love you just as you are. And paradoxically, it was only when he received that permission to just be as he was that he actually felt free to change. And he said he relaxed and opened to a feeling of aliveness that had been blocked off for years. There's an amazing power to putting down the gun, to just saying, okay. Carl Rogers described it, unconditional positive regard. So the next next step when we encounter Mara that we find out we're going to that we do that actually is not having tea with Mara it's really analyzing and figuring out and keeping Mara at a distance is our mental activity notice in the places that are difficult in your life where stuff is stirred up how many moments you're spending trying to figure things out trying to mentally make sense of it now this is not a a call to um, vanquish all thinking, but just to know that to truly be intimate with what's here, our thoughts are going to create a smokescreen. Okay? So what happens, and it's another level of ego control, of asserting the self, of resisting, is that we lock into our thoughts and our interpretations of what's going on when it's with another person we're trying to figure out how come they're doing whatever when it's with us there's this figuring out that goes on it separates us one of my favorite examples uh, that some of you might again remember from last year's one of my the stories I like a lot is was when uh, some centuries ago as the story goes the Pope decided that all the Jews had to leave Rome and there's this big uproar from the Jewish community so the Pope made a deal and he said he'd have a religious debate with a member of the Jewish community and if the Jews won, Jew won the Jews could stay and if the Pope won the Jews would have to leave so the Jews realized they had no choice and they picked a middle aged man named Moshe to represent them and he asked for one addition to the debate to make it more interesting neither side would be able to talk 
Okay. The Pope agreed. Day of the great debate comes, and Moisha and the Pope sat opposite of each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moisha looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope waved his, his fingers in a circle around his head, and Moisha pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine. Moisha pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man's too good. The Jews can stay. An hour later, the cardinals were all around the Pope asking him what had happened. The Pope said, well, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity, and he responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was still one God common to both our religions. Then I waved my finger around me to show that God was all around us, and he responded by pointing to the ground, showing that God was right here in this moment with us. I pulled out a wine and wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins, and he pulled out an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, (laughs) the Jewish community crowned around Moisha. What happened, they asked. Well, he said, first the Pope said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. I told him that not one of us was leaving. (laughs) He told me that the whole city would be cleared of Jews, and I told him that we were staying right here. (laughs) Yes, yes, and then asked the crowd. I don't know, said Moisha. He took out his lunch, and I took out mine. (laughs) We live in interpretations. We do. We do. It's not always so outrageous as that, but any thoughts we have are a representation of reality. They're one step removed. So they can be useful up to a point, but if we don't take the big leap and step out of the thinking and into where the aliveness and the tangles and the pain and the mystery lives, then there's no healing. So we move on to the next piece, which is to have tea with Mara, we have to be here embodied. Okay, so just to review, put down the gun, don't make it wrong, okay? Recognize all the thinking and the interpretation, okay, come back, come into the body. There's a recognition that... um, and this is something that is both true for healing and for spiritual freedom, that what we resist primarily lives as energetic tangles in our body that when we pay attention to them, it frees them to untangle and rejoin the whole of our energy flow. But if we don't pay attention to them, they stay as tangles and they control our life experience. So the fear, the shame, the deepest core emotions live energetically in our body and only when we pay attention, only when we stop resisting in a very... and it takes a lot of bravery, only when we let everything happen do we actually open to the space and the awareness and presence that's really our home. I often go back to Alice Miller because she describes how there's no way that we can avoid what's in the body. And in one of her books she wrote it so eloquently. She says, The truth about our childhood is stored up in our body, and although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, and conceptions confused, 
and our body tricked with medication. Those are the ways of resisting. But someday our body will resent as bell, for it is as incorruptible as a child who still whole in spirit will accept no compromises or excuses, and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading the truth. Now for some it's very extreme that there's been abuse or violence that's stored in a, in a very deep way and, and it takes a real gradual opening into the body, it takes a lot of support and help, in fact opening into the body too quickly and without some resourcefulness can actually be re-traumatizing. So this is, an, again, a call to, okay, I'm going to like open to the deepest terror right this moment. We have to do it with compassion and with a wisdom and gradualness. But eventually, to have tea with Mara means to invite the unseen, unfelt places in our body into awareness. And the understanding, and I think uh, Carl Jung put it wonderfully too, he said that nothing creates as much damage and as much suffering to themselves and their children as the unlived life of the parents. Nothing creates as much suffering to ourselves, to our children, as the unlived life of the parents. So when you don't live your life fully, you end up creating suffering for yourself and all those that you touch. So we resist difficult experience. We resist the, and that creates an unlived life and it doesn't go away. It just finds different ways of expressing, which might be through distance from others, through addiction, through physical illness. So the practice is putting down the gun and in a very deep way listening to and feeling the life in the body. There's a... Um, description that has been really helpful to me. Um, I'm in a process of writing again. I started uh, about a year ago writing another book and, and it means I have to take stretches of time and the only way that I can really write is when I'm getting in touch with whatever tangles I haven't been in touch with. In other words, if I'm trying to write and there's stuff there that I'm not paying attention to, there's no flow of any authentic presence or realization. And so last year I remember going to teach uh, or actually give a talk at Omega at a women's conference and Isabel Allende was one of the other um, speakers and she's a, a writer I very much admire and she was describing how she goes about writing. And here's her, um, here's her strategy. She says that she has a ritual of starting books on January 8th she's written a lot of books, so a lot of January 8th she'd started. And the way she does it is before January 8th comes, she clears away a lot of the clutter of her life and her space. And then she does this kind of meditative process of going into stillness and into silence. And she says her attitude is one of deep willingness to touch and listen to the dark and unexamined places in her own heart. She has no idea what she's going to write about. What she does is she clears the space, puts down the gun, comes right here, and then she pays attention to whatever's been unexamined, unfelt, the unlived life. And she says that her characters, her stories arise from this presence with what she had been, whatever she had been running from. So there's this engagement. 
So I found that, you know, really powerful to listen to. And then she went on, and this was the piece that was really, really grabbed me, which is she ran into the, the um, life situation that probably would be the last thing any of us would want to encounter, which is her daughter, Paula, went into a coma and died. And um, she described that how it happened was because of hospital negligence. There had been 3,000 people, patients in the hospital, there was a strike, it was a long weekend, her daughter died. Now, she could have had a lot of different levels of reaction, okay? You know, she could have blamed herself for choosing that hospital, or she could have, the most obvious is, felt a a tremendous sense of anger and hatred and blame towards the hospital or the government or whatever it was. But what she said is that if she had done that, and those are ways of resisting, right? I mean, she could also have gotten numb, gotten drunk, you know, gone into any of the other resistance I've named. But she said that if she resisted by blaming, she would have never found healing around the grief. And I've shared many times the teaching from a tribe in Africa that says vengeance is a lazy form of grief that when we blame, when we lash out, that's a way of resisting or avoiding where the real rawness is, which is the hurt and the loss that our hearts are feeling. So for her, the process, again back to Relka's line, let everything happen to you, and let let everything happen to you, the beauty and the terror. Her process was that she grieved and felt and felt and felt her her hurt and her despair. She wrote 180 letters to her mother that just where she was feeling it and expressing it, feeling and expressing it. She lived it and lived it and lived it. And by doing this basic practice of naming what was there, I hope this brings you back to rain, recognizing and allowing what's there, by investigating the dark places, she opened to a space of compassion and presence, a healing that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. She let it happen. She let what was happening happen. She met it with presence. As it turns out, out of that that being with the most tragic thing that had ever happened to her. And there's not one of us here that if we haven't already won't find something that feels like it's too much to handle. It's what we're afraid of. We're afraid that if we aren't already experiencing it, it's around the corner. Every one of us. Because we're in a body and we lose what we love. So then the question is, how do we take refuge? Are we going to resist and then bind ourselves, have unlived life, not be fully alive? Are we going to practice this way of attention where we put down the gun, we step out of our thoughts and we courageously be with, feel our throat, our chest, our heart, the pain that's there? For her, that being with allowed her to continue living in a creative way. She set up a foundation in her daughter's name that's now helping hundreds of thousands of women in third world countries. She just continues to be a font for creativity and love. She would have shut down if she had resisted that level of pain. 
my theory is that the more intense and painful and the more we open, the more we become that openness. The more we come home to this, this vastness of this mystery of what we are. So again, I want to say that sometimes it's too much in the moment and sometimes we need support and help and that is wise to have. It's wise to reach out when it feels like too much. When we need to sit down and have tea with Mara but we need a few others with us having tea, it's okay. One of, my, one of the stories I like to describe, which is that we sometimes have to call on some loving support or some safety. And uh, for one woman... She was dying of AIDS and she was trapped in the most bitter kind of self-recrimination and self-aversion. And she was being visited by um, a priest. And he saw a picture on her dresser of a young woman and he said, who's that? And she said, it's my daughter. And she said, well, the priest said, well, would you judge her? Would you be critical of her if she was suffering greatly? And the woman said, no, why would you ask? She's the one light in my life. I love my daughter. And and the priest then said, well, God has a picture of you on his dresser. Try to trust that. So sometimes we have to find ways to remember love in order to be with what is terrible or difficult or painful. Jennifer Wellwood writes this, she says, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Every condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant, jewel-like essence. So we each, unless we're free, have our yet unembraced places, each one of us. And some of us it's really that we haven't embraced how much longing there is or loneliness that's very deep. We don't want to face quite the realness of our loneliness, our yearning for intimacy, or that we yearn for feeling more alive. We don't really let ourselves go there. And we can live for days or years in kind of these habitual ways and really not let ourselves register that we feel pain, that we're missing out, that there's something we yearn for. The writer Audre Lorde says, We have been raised to fear the yes within ourselves, our deepest cravings. And the fear of our deepest cravings keeps them suspect, keeps us docile and loyal and obedient, and leads us to settle for or accept many facets of our own oppression. So that's one part of the unlived life, is the longings, that we invite Mara to tea and rather than resist, we trace back the cravings to the depth of what's underneath them. Sometimes it's just that we want to be more alive. We've, you know, we manage our lives so mightily to just cover over the mystery and to really cover over the wildness. It's 
Hafiz who says we have a duty to befriend those aspects of obedience that stand outside of our house and shout to our reason oh please, oh please, come out and play that's part of what we resist that in us which wants to be free to play then there's Mary Oliver who says you do not have to be good you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves we talk of resistance and we think of something out there but so much of what we resist is the aliveness that's right here we don't let ourselves open to it so it's that level of resisting the aliveness and then resisting the pain of losses um, we don't let ourselves mourn we, we seem to kind of skate over where the losses are part of what was drawing me to this poem so much um, over these last weeks is I was away and I was in a mix of teaching and also um, with my family on Cape Cod And it was a very um, intense and challenging time for me because once again, and this is the second year in a row this has happened, I injured myself, I injured my knees and I was on Cape Cod and after the first few days unable to really walk on the beach and unable to walk at all and then I got pretty sick. So there I was with people I love in a beautiful, beautiful place and dealing with a kind of recurrent illness that actually immobilizes me at times and so it was I've watched the the habit of the second arrow over the years because I've dealt with a lot of illness for the last decade or so and typically for me the beginning of the second arrow whether it's the this shouldn't be happening or the resenting it happening is judging myself like how did I manage to do something to again hurt myself or whatever and then a kind of an anger, resentment uh, at how it all is and then a fear like, oh my God, I'll never be able to fill in the blank, whatever it is because my, my activity gets so limited but I'm more quick to go to the grief now because all those second arrows are ways of not feeling what really wants to be felt which is right now there's loss, there's a feeling of loss and so this poem, Let Everything Happen to You became very, very meaningful to just, okay, so this is what's happening rather than interpret it, try to figure it out, resent it just let it happen letting it happen isn't passive as we might think letting it happen doesn't mean that if um, somebody is attacking you, you just say, okay, step on me, kill me it doesn't mean that if somebody accuses you of a crime that you don't defend yourself it means what's actually happening what you're actually experiencing letting yourself experience it and for most of us if we're honest there are losses that are ungrieved and I know for myself just this willingness to pause and put down the gun and feel the grief actually freed me to open to the beauty that was there because I wasn't consolidated in resistance I was open so I was open to what was terrible so to speak and what was beautiful the poet David White writes about this in a poem that I share often 
called the well of grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through the black, its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. So what we're exploring tonight really is how in the face of the life that happens how do we arrive with a kind of presence that rather than resisting actually allows this life to happen and in the midst we can discover the presence, the freedom and the love that's here that gets obscured when we resist, but that's always here. The poet Rumi says, keep your gaze on the wounded place, that's where the light enters. How do we stay with what's difficult? So we'll practice some. Um, We'll just invite you to pick an area and we'll practice some of these kind of basic elements together and then we'll close the evening. as you've been listening perhaps you identified some place in your life where rather than inviting Mara to tea you've been at odds take some moments and sense where that might be something you wish away something you feel shouldn't be happening or you wish wasn't happening and know with any of these guided explorations that there's not a certain way that it it should happen that more it's an opportunity just to begin to investigate what perhaps you haven't attended to and you can carry it on on your own but to bring to mind some place in your life where you get caught or you're reactive, it might be in a relationship so, for so many of us that's where it happens where something is evoked in you, something comes up some fear, some disappointment some hurt, some anger and you want the situation to be different or it might be that what's difficult comes up is a mood that comes up in you or an addictive behavior something that's coming up in in relationship to your work and to first just honestly notice how have I been relating to this so far when Mara has appeared Mara meaning all the thoughts and feelings that are painful around this one when Mara appears how have I been relating to that? Have I been down on myself for how I've been handling it? Or have I been blaming someone else? Or have I been trying to ignore? Or trying to numb? 
and sense for right this moment your willingness to put down the gun to just investigate in an undefended way how it is just for now, that that willingness to seize rejecting the situation to not make it wrong to not sense, oh this shouldn't be here but just, okay, this is here it's happening and as you do, just notice what is it maybe that you're believing that's so painful? are you believing that you'll never get what you want or that this means that you're not lovable? that you can't be happy because you've lost what really matters? What, what's, what's the belief in there? Just gently see if you can sense that. So it's in awareness. And most important, what goes on in your body when you're really feeling the worst part of this, when you're most in, afraid of what's going to happen, upset about what's going on. See if you can just feel in your body and you might even invite it to be as big as it wants to be for now if you feel safe doing so. What does it mean to really let everything happen to you, to let this experience be lived in your body? You might sense how your face is you make a facial expression that most expresses how it feels when you're in the thick of this situation. Just let your face express it and it'll get you more in touch with what's going on in your body. What happens if you just feel it in your body and breathe with it and let it happen? What happens if you offer a kind attention to it? For some that might be just to put your hand on your own heart and just sense, okay, let it happen. Let there just be a kind presence with this right now. Notice what that's like to offer kindness to what's happening. Experiment. There might even be a message from your own heart to the place of difficulty. And it's okay. Or care. I care about this suffering. Darling, I care about this suffering, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it. Sense who you are when you're not resisting just that right now. Sense who you are when there's no resisting this, there's just presence. Let everything happen to you beauty and terror, just keep going 
No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You'll know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. Don't let yourself lose me. Don't let yourself lose this presence, this sacred presence, this loving presence that is vast enough to hold whatever's happening. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You'll know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. As a way of closing this meditation, you might just feel your breath in a gentle way letting go of ideas or thoughts or feelings that perhaps you've been focusing on and sensing as fully as you can what's right here in this room, in your heart. Sensing your own presence, the tenderness, the awakeness, sensing the possibility within each of us, within beings around this planet, to move from the resisting, the fighting, the fleeing, to this capacity for presence, for peace, that can really heal our world. May all beings everywhere be filled with loving-kindness. May they be held in loving-kindness. May they realize loving-kindness as their essence. May there be peace on earth, peace everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.